The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we'll uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help to start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. Today, Sarah and I talk about indigenous cosmology and how it differs from the Western worldview in ways that have led directly to our dominant culture having a really distorted relationship with nature, with creation, and with the processes of life. Hi, Sarah. Hi. We had some technical snafus leading up to this, so it's just so good to hear your voice. (laughs) Same. (laughs) So what are we talking about today? Well, I wanted to talk about reverence. I've been taught by my Indigenous elders to value reverence. It's a core thing I've been taught. My experience of spirituality in the dominant culture, which is, as you know, the culture I was really raised in, is to value faith. Faith, from my point of view, is believing in something that I can't see or prove with my senses. In spite of overwhelming doubt, I'm going to believe anyway. But reverence is something different. It's deep respect. Faith is meaningless, in my experience, in the indigenous cosmology. The creator is evident in creation, which surrounds me. I'm part of it. Humility is acknowledging that I'm not separate from creation, that I'm part of a web of life. I've been taught that this mutual dependence is a gift, that life itself is a gift. And that's my understanding of reverence, which feels different. Okay, so let me see if I can say that back to you, because I'm really intrigued by this. Um, The way you were taught about faith, and I was also taught this, is that faith is like a belief in the spiritual realm, and that spiritual realm is distinct from the material realm. So this belief in the spiritual realm, you really can't access it with your senses because you can't see it. It's abstract in that sense. You have to believe, you have to basically need to decide that you're going to believe in that spiritual realm, even if it's not evident to your senses. But in the worldview of reverence that you just described, you look around you and spirit is everywhere and it's evident in the processes of life that you see all around you. Right. Yeah. The reason I think this is important to talk about is that I think it's important to understand indigenous cosmology. In fact, I think when we're talking about issues related to spirituality, there's often a disconnect between sort of an understanding of what indigenous spirituality is when it's contrasted with Christianity. Of course, I can't express what this cosmology is for every indigenous person in the world. As we're talking about dismantling the doctrine of discovery, that can feel kind of hard because we're all part of the dominant culture together, steeped in the Western worldview. That's just how life is. It's just reality. And we start to talk through some of the inequity that is inherent in the way our systems operate. Talking about these ideas is important. Crucial to this conversation today is thinking through this lofty thing, the spiritual realm versus the physical realm, which is seen as of lower importance. The spiritual realm is the thing that we're striving for, and the physical realm is the thing that we are, by our nature, separate from. 
that's what I was raised to believe in Christianity. And I want to talk about another way of looking at that. Yeah, this is why I think I'm so intrigued by this. I did a seminar years ago at a Mennonite convention that looked at Greek philosophy, especially at a school of thought that uh, it's called spiritualistic dualism, that is this idea. It's this, the idea that there's a split between the body and the spirit. The latter, the spirit, is the far superior. And of course, this Greek thought really influenced the development of Christianity and the development of the Western worldview. So, you know, I have just one quick quote from Plato that I went back and looked at from what I said at that seminar. Plato praises the man, and it's always a man, who pursues the truth by applying his pure and unadulterated thought to the pure and unadulterated object, cutting himself off as much as possible from his eyes and ears and virtually all the rest of his body, which by its presence prevents the soul from attaining to truth and clear thinking. So anything, it's like anything we get with our senses is just going to be corrupted almost, or not of spiritual value. So I think it's an understatement to say that there's a pretty radical disjuncture between that Western worldview based in that spiritualistic dualism and what you're talking about. So let's talk about this indigenous worldview based in reverence and the ramifications of it. Well, as you know, Sherry, I'm a Christian. I mean, that's my identity. And so I'm going to start with scripture. And this is scripture that I think has really helped to shape my thinking about this. So I want to start with Romans chapter one, verse 19. And Paul writes, what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. The scripture is consistent with an indigenous worldview that the nature of the creator is evident in creation. And so indigenous peoples have been accused of animism, and I've heard this lots of times, which is worshiping the creation rather than creator. But really the basis of indigenous spirituality, as I have learned it, as it's been taught to me, is reverence. The Navajo, my relatives from New Mexico and Arizona, they don't worship the sun or the sun bearer as is supposed. They express reverence from the spirit of life, the creator, by finding elements of the creator's nature in the sun, the sun that's faithful and unfailing, the giver of light, the giver of life. In the environment where I live on 200 acres of habitat in the foothills of Mount Adams, what the first people where I live call Pato, um, I see the faithfulness of the creator with each season. In spite of all my neighbor's efforts to thwart it. Each spring, life returns to the soil. Trees and plants flower. Pollinators do the important work um, spreading the miracle of life. The Yakima Nation, which is the people where I live on the lands of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation, the Yakima practice reverence in their spring feast. They give thanks before they go out to gather. The elders instruct us, take just what you need and leave plenty for future generations. So I'll give you an example of this. One of the things I have the privilege to do in the, in the place where I live is preserve quite a lot of fruit, including you know currants and elderberry and chokecherry and so on. And so we have just a, a big stand of golden currants behind our calving sheds. And I go and pick those in the spring. It's the first fruit I can pick. 
and juice it and make jelly from from the juice. And if I were to be really efficient, I could say I'm going to strip every berry off of this stand and make all the juice I possibly could. And that would be the most sort of efficient way to do it if I were using sort of a economic lens. When in reality, when I leave the majority of those berries, which I do for the birds, they actually plant additional current bushes as they eat those berries. You know, the berries pass through the bird. The birds are flying around. They plant additional current bushes. And so, you know, they're part of the process of sustaining the life of those plants. And so we learn from creation the processes of life and the nature that is self-evident in the spirit of life. And we learn our place in it. So once again, the Yakimas say this, when the hunter climbs to track his prey, he knows that it's his brother that waits for him. I'm going to say that again. When the hunter climbs to track his prey, he knows it's his brother that waits for him. connected. The survival of one determines the survival of the other. The prey is not objectified. It's not subdued. Its sacrifice is honored. So an elder and friend of mine, Mark McDonald, who's actually Indigenous Archbishop for the Anglican Church of Canada, he explained to me that the miracle that Moses experienced when he spoke to God through a bush on fire was not that the bush burned without being consumed. He said that the real miracle was that Moses was able to see the true nature of the bush. He told me, if you look around, you will see that all around us, the spirit of life is burning in creation. The nature of the creator clearly seen. I really love everything you said. And I really love that interpretation of the burning bush, like what the true miracle was there of seeing the spirit of life burning in creation. You know, it's just so poignant how different that is from how our dominant culture operates. The dominant culture sees the world as one big economic resource for us to extract wealth from. And <laughs> creation isn't sacred. It's a cash cow. So there's, you know, literal cows that we have to, um, mm -hmm. I was going to say mine, we don't mind cows, but it sometimes feels like we do. You know, we raise these literal cows and we basically bulldoze rainforests to do that. And we blow up hilltops to get the quartz to make silica. And none of these things are done in a sustainable way such that, you know, our ecosystems are now collapsing and we're just eating up. We're consuming our earth. And it's just about as opposite from reverence as you can possibly get. And I'm struck how you said, you know, you work with the processes of life. Well, we can see what happens when we don't do that. We basically participate in death. And I'm curious, like, how do we work with the processes of life? I would just sort of start by saying you are part of creation and creation is part of you. It's not separate from you. It's part of you. In Matthew chapter nine, Jesus tells the leaders of the church, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So what the heck does that mean? It feels like it's kind of a riddle 
Jesus is actually quoting the prophet Hosea. The theme comes up again and again throughout the prophets. Uh, Isaiah 1 says this, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. And so he says, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening because your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean and learn to do right. Seek justice and defend the oppressed. I'm kind of paraphrasing there. But this idea that we are obligated to participate justly in a system of life as opposed to seeing ourselves as somehow separate from that system of life. So Isaiah is explaining that God's people are responsible for more than their individual sins. They're responsible for structural evil. So structural evil is this process of damaging creation and the earth itself for short-term gain, short-term monetary gain. So regardless of individual good deeds, the entire society that Isaiah is referring to is based on oppression. So laws, policies, practices that are based on the strong profiting from the weak and the vulnerable or a society where the strength of the powerful comes from oppression is a society of structural evil. So I'll return once again to what the Yakimas say. When the hunter climbs to track his prey, he knows that it is his brother that waits for him. His prey is his brother His prey is his brother, a loved one. Yet the society that Isaiah describes objectifies and exploits the poor and the oppressed for gain. So counter to what we know of the creator that is manifest in creation. So those are some kind of complicated ideas there. But if we understand that creation really demonstrates interconnectedness, that you are part of a whole, that is revelatory in terms of the nature of God, then you see that exploiting the vulnerable is inconsistent with that nature. Yeah. I mean, what I think I'm hearing here is that just as we exist within an interdependent structural whole, it's almost like when we sin, we're sinning against that whole. Mm. And that this focus on individual sin that is so much a hallmark of Christianity in the West often doesn't look at that structural evil about how we can be a part of sinning almost against life itself, Mm. I guess I want to say. I'm just hearing that in a new way in what you said. We are positively in this network of interdependence and that Mm -hmm. when we sin, the sin is is, is almost like not recognizing reality. Mm. Sin is not recognizing reality. Mm. We are bound together and looking at somebody as being somehow separate from me is actually a sin against God and reality. Mm-hmm. Right. So reverence sort of implies that reality is created according to the nature of the creator. Right. And so sinning against reality, as you say, is the same as sinning against the creator. Yeah. I am part of a whole. I'm going to give you one more obscure <laughs> scripture here. In the book of Amos, in chapter 5, Amos says, this is verse 11, you levy a straw tax on the poor. So you're taxing 
poor people for using straw and you impose a tax on their grain. The writer goes on to say, I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times because these are evil times. He goes on to say, seek good and not evil that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil and love good. Maintain justice in the courts. So today I see that we participate in the same society that was described by Amos and Isaiah. And I see the injustice most remarkably in the ways the middle class, including the church, invests its money. Oh, well, wow. You're going to have to say more about that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let me give you a personal example from the community in Suriname that I've worked with and I've represented. So in Suriname, South America, mining processes load the environment with mercury and cyanide and a major mining company in negotiation with the Matawai people in my presence has admitted discharging huge quantities of cyanide into the river system multiple times a year. The nervous systems of indigenous adults and children who live in the region that are ravaged by mercury, a toxin they are exposed to throughout their lives, start when they are forming in the womb. The combined mining interests in Suriname pay just a tiny percentage of the net profit each year to the government of Suriname. And this is a trade deal that was negotiated with the help of the Organization of American States. The rules of trade are arranged to benefit the developed world so that the developed world can say, see, we paid for the right to pollute this country and we did it legally, just as Amos is describing. And so we individually and collectively as Americans or those people living in the developed world, we're the beneficiaries. So let me tell you who I'm really talking about. Anabaptist financial institutions are invested in Newmont Mining. Hmm. Yeah, wow. So (laughs) in spite of the fact then that we Mennonites think of ourselves as these people living these more with less lives, we're just also one of the eaters of the earth. I mean, we're invested in eating up the earth in this way, and we're really invested in literal death. Yeah, exactly. So given this clarity, I mean, I'm curious because I know you you say this to a lot of different people. How do people, and by people, I really mean myself too, how do people react to that clarity? I know that we can sort of not hear what you're saying and kind of get all defensive Mm -hmm. about that. And I'm just curious, how do you hear people responding to that clarity? My intention is not to just give people a hard time about this and point fingers. It's really calling people into the work of dismantling the doctrine of discovery, which is seeking justice for indigenous and vulnerable peoples. What I often hear are the reasons why they are not going to respond to the call. And I'll tell you some of those reasons that I hear frequently. The first is that things are worse somewhere else. So for example, there's suffering everywhere and it's really overwhelming. How do I choose which place to focus on? I hear that a fair amount. Another one that I hear is the solutions are not within my direct sphere of influence. You know, what could I possibly do about it? I'm so small. Or another one I hear, especially in faith circles, we need to change our hearts first. You know, we need to do some deep reflecting um, within our church institutions before we can take action in the world. I also hear our 
institutions are entangled financially. And so, hey, you know, we really don't want to take action because it's going to potentially impact our own financial interests, which is true. And so I hear we need to protect our jobs and our retirement accounts. I hear a lot of that. I've also heard people in financial industry, whether they're people who are on a a mission board or a CFO of a major church institution or actually part of an investment firm, who say, we can support good stewardship with biblical texts too. You know, like, hey, we can justify our point of view too. You know, I also hear from quite a lot of people, hey, you know, I need to find work-home balance, so I'm not going to, I can't take anything on. Or, you know, probably the most defeating, there's not much I can personally do. When I was working to bring these issues to the World Council of Churches, a respected international leader told me, We can't be sidelined at the World Council of Churches by one issue. We need to focus on peace. This was the response that this leader made when I asked the Coalition of Historic Peace Churches at the World Council of Churches to advocate for dismantling the doctrine of discovery at an international level. So my response to that was, you know, indigenous people, we're not an issue. We're a people with a message of hope for humanity, a humanity without hope. And I really stand by that. And what is that hope? That the nature of God, God's eternal nature and divine power is clear. Our instructions are clear. We must choose the systems of life over the systems of death and defend the oppressed. In spite of the current political realities that surround us, we can't be deceived that we are somehow in a battle that is winnable for the people who are invested in extraction and this sort of short-term reductive process. There's really only one side, and that's the side of creation. There's only one reality, and it is defined by the principles of life. Anything that runs counter to those principles is doomed to fail. way you're saying, Sarah, that this is not a winnable battle. So though it might feel like we're battling with, I mean, honestly, it's me battling with myself. I mean, I'm invested. I have retirement savings, and I'm sure those retirement savings are invested in Newmont Mining. So I'm sitting with that tension. What I hear you saying is that basically this idea that we're going to be able to keep doing what we're doing it's going to fail anyways, because it's basically running counter to the principles of life. Right. Yep. That's exactly it. Yes. And I think, you know, it's so true. I think we're just all learning more and more how this dominant Western culture is unsustainable because it's based on endless growth on a finite planet. It's not based in ecological reality, which is what you've been talking about. When I hear you talking about reverence, I hear you talking about a cosmology that's essentially ecological. It's based in the ecological principles that the Western world is sort of coming to become more aware of in the last like few decades. Mm-hmm. And I really think you're right that the future is going to continue to reveal this unsustainability until the whole thing collapses or until we make big changes in how we organize our human life and our economies. And, you know, I just saw that this last fall when here living in California, we had so many wildfires. I know you had them up there, too. Mm -hmm. I had five people in my middle class church 
that left this area because they had compromised health and it wasn't okay for them to be here where the smoke was so bad. And they're, they're people of some privilege and they know that so they could get away from it. But how many other folks aren't going to be able to run away from just the unsustainability of this life-destroying system? And the fact is, it's going to catch up with all of us. All of us. And yet we think that our investments are what keep us secure. That's right. And what do we sacrifice on the altar of our security? We've collectively invested in a death machine that's linear, reductive, destructive, a machine that destroys air, water, soils, the systems that all of creation depends upon and that we are dependent upon. And what does this death machine give us? Profit, money that provides us short-term luxury, short-term security. Luxury is not a word Anabaptists tend to relate to. We say to ourselves and to each other, that's not us. But what about security? Does this death machine cooperate with the spirit of God, the spirit of life? Hmm. So you're saying that we're invested in this short-term idea of security, even if not luxury. Um, and yet we don't have the security we think we have hmm. because we are not cooperating with the spirit of God and the spirit of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, in the end, all things will come together to support life. Slowly at first, one by one or in twos, we come together and we converge. And this is what I constantly will tell people who are afraid and nervous and say that they, they don't feel that they can get involved. But we are actually made to do this, to join together and to collaborate. Instructions are in the very fabric of our DNA, and we have to choose life. It's human to breathe the air to dwell in the land, to need water and nourishment. All of us will tend toward systems that enable these things ultimately. It's human to work together, to possess dignity, to speak and to be heard. It's human to be touched, to be loved, to feel sympathy, camaraderie, to experience forgiveness and compassion. Our fragile bodies require that we cooperate to survive. And these tools are ours by birthright. All of us are drawn to systems that enable these things. The way of life can't be thwarted. It's the only reality for us all because we do not see their failure and our own lifespan is no reason for despair. The great unknown unfolds itself over millennia across an ever-expanding universe. And those who seem mighty only seem so for a fleeting viewpoint. Your presence, the truth that runs through your veins, through the ancient chain of your ancestors bears the testament to this truth. Do not be afraid. The ever unfolding process of life, the spirit of life, the creator is a power with no end and cannot be overcome. Hmm. Wow, uh, Sarah, that's so beautiful. I mean, I just feel like I'm in church right now <laughs> in the good way. I feel like I just heard a very powerful word. So thank you for that. I mean, what you said is so grounded in the truth of the destructive way of life we live in, and yet it's also so grounded in hope in the end. So thank you for giving me that hope. You bet. I look forward to talking more about this. Yeah, I do too, because I want you to tell me in a future podcast what I'm supposed to do about my investments. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sarah. All right. Thanks, Sherry.
This podcast is hosted by us, co-produced by the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Audio editing was done by Shannon Kaler. And theme music by Micah Peplo and Shannon. Thank you. Thank you.